commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth. (laughs) Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Do you sit to try me according to the law and in violation of the law order me to be struck? But the bystanders said, do you revile God's high priest? Paul said, I was not aware, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. But perceiving that one group were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, Paul began crying out to the council, into the council, Brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees, and I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. Well, as he said this, there occurred a dissension between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor an angel or a spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. And there occurred a great uproar, and some of the scribes of the Pharisaic party stood up and began to argue heatedly, saying, We find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. And as a great dissension was developing, the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them and order the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. But on the night immediately following, the Lord stood at his side and said, Take courage. For as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause in Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. This is really quite an intriguing confrontation between Paul and the Jewish ruling body, the Sanhedrin. The two things that especially stood out to me as I've been reading over this passage is this. First is how Paul demonstrates true wisdom in the way he interacts. Not just here, but even leading up to this. But second, we also see a demonstration of real courage. Wisdom and courage actually intertwine and affect each other. But we're going to look at them separately. It just seems to be easier to divide them out. That's how we're going to do it. So first, Paul is an example to us of one who acted with godly wisdom. Wisdom is something the Bible recommends highly to us. Of course, as you know, there's a whole genre of biblical literature in the Old Testament known as wisdom literature. It includes Psalms, uh, Job, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes. We are exhorted over and over again to pursue wisdom. And really, that's probably one of the most common prayers that we pray. I mean, we pray for wisdom when we have to make a decision. We pray for wisdom in how to approach a particular situation or a relationship with a particular person. We oftentimes pray for wisdom about that. We pray for wisdom for doctors who are treating us in various ailments and so forth that are there. We pray for wisdom in how to interact with the things going on in our culture. So the bottom line is we all need and desire wisdom. I think there are several things in Paul's response to the Sanhedrin that give us some insight into what is included in wisdom. But before we get to that, I want to share this quote from Samuel Parkinson about wisdom. I thought this was a very insightful quote. He says, Biblical wisdom is concerned with the whole person wholly living before the face of God. The whole person wholly living before the face of God. Right thinking and right living are the two hands of a wise person who uses those hands in reverent service to God. At first, we are talking talking here about biblical wisdom. 
We're not talking about someone who's wise in the ways of the world and just maybe has you know, lots of degrees after their name or whatever. We're speaking of someone who is, <clears throat> who is wise in the ways of God and especially conscious of pleasing God. <clears throat> Parkinson points out that wisdom is right thinking, but it's not limited to how one thinks and reasons. Right thinking must also be seen in right living. Those two things are essential for someone to be a truly wise person. So I want to point out three characteristics of biblical wisdom that I think are evident in Paul. First one is this. Godly wisdom is based on the fear of the Lord. It's based on the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So when we speak of the fear of the Lord, we're speaking of reverence. We're speaking of worship. For example, as we were singing songs of praise this morning, that was the fear of the Lord. As we read and hear the scriptures and we read those scriptures to understand them as being the true word of God, that's the fear of the Lord. As we live as, we live as people who are seeking to live our life in submission to Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, not just in church but throughout the day, throughout our lives, that's living in the fear of the Lord, living in submission to the Lord. Well, as we've already noted, that is exactly what Paul confessed that he was, as he was considering the suffering that he would endure in Jerusalem. When everyone was pleading with him not to go to Jerusalem because of the danger involved, Paul responded, in the fear of the Lord, I'm ready to not only be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. That's the fear of the Lord. That's what that is. So Paul was not willing to focus on the difficulty, on the pain, on the suffering, or even the possible death he might endure. His focus was living for the glory and honor of the Lord Jesus Christ, living in the fear of the Lord. That's what his focus was. And it was because of this that Paul asked to speak to the Jews, as we said earlier, who had just dragged him out of the temple and had tried to kill him. It's because of Paul's commitment to Jesus Christ that he spoke of what Jesus Christ had done to change his life to that mob. He spoke of how Jesus rebuked him there in the road to Damascus for his own sin of persecuting the church. He spoke of how Jesus Christ actually revealed himself to be his, so that he was his Lord and Savior. Well, that's what Paul has in mind when he says to the Sanhedrin in Acts 23, 1, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God to this day. In other words, I have lived my life in the fear of the Lord. Paul could be include could be including this his life here as time even before his faith in Christ possibly. I mean, he had a true zeal for the law of God and therefore for God himself. He was deceived and he was living, but he was living consistently with what he believed to be the will of God. So there's a possibility that could be part of what he has in mind here. But if it is, that's not at all his main point because if that's the main thing he's saying, everybody in the Sanhedrin would agree with that. No problem with that. It's what happened after Damascus that the issue is. So his real focus here is in this statement is his life since he put his faith in Jesus Christ. The Sanhedrin did not believe Jesus was the Christ. They consider that to be blasphemy, 
which of course Paul would deny, he is absolutely convinced that Jesus is the Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament, that they all agreed, that they all understood. And in all good conscience, he had served Christ faithfully since his conversion. That's the fear of the Lord in action. He is not living in the fear of the Sanhedrin. He's not living in the fear of the mob. He is living in the fear of the one true God, Jesus Christ, his Savior. And by living in the fear of the Lord, Paul has wisdom. He has the wisdom to see what the truth actually is. The men in the Sanhedrin have a zeal for God like Paul had, but they're deceived just like he was. Paul is no longer deceived. He is wise. He understands the truth. That's all because of Jesus Christ. So godly wisdom begins, is built on, is founded on the fear of the Lord. Next we see godly wisdom is based on the truth of the Word of God. It's based on the truth of the Word of God. Paul understood the Old Testament law, the prophets, the writings, every aspect of the Old Testament scriptures. He had a thorough education at the feet of Gamaliel in those things. He knew all the prophecies, all the types, all the foreshadowings of the Messiah that were revealed, that are revealed in those Old Testament books. When Jesus revealed himself to Paul as the Messiah, Paul knew for certain that those biblical prophecies had been fulfilled. That's another reason Paul was able to stand before the Sanhedrin with true biblical wisdom. He was standing solidly on the word of God. He knew beyond a shadow of doubt what the truth was. And he held firm to that. There is no way a person can be wise if they do not know what is true. If you don't know what is true, you can't be wise. And wise people also, I'll just kind of do a little commentary here on the side. Wise people don't look at something true and pretend that it's something different than it actually is. In other words, you're not going to pretend something is true when it really isn't. Our culture is pushing that big time, that you've got to walk in pretending all the time that something is true, and it's not true at all. Anyway, I'm not going to go into that. But, someone, but to be wise, you have to know what is true. So when Paul said that he had lived with a clear conscience, the high priest had him struck on the mouth, either with his hand or some kind of rod or something, this was to indicate that he was perceived to have lied, that his testimony could not be trusted. Well, since Paul understood the law, he knew what the truth was, and since he lived in the fear of the Lord, he was able to respond with firm and pointed wisdom. He knew that it was a violation of the law of Moses to strike a person who had not been found guilty of a crime. Leviticus 19.15 says, You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. Well, striking a person in the mouth when he is just beginning his defense was completely unjust. In fact, that action showed the high priest to be the fool. He was not acting and according to the truth of the word of God, but Paul was. But we also see that Paul did not seem to realize that the one who said he should be stricken 
was the high priest. If you do any reading on this, you're going to see all kinds of ideas of trying to understand what actually is going on here. So there are several ways to explain this. I'm not going to go into all the possibilities. I'm going to share the one that makes the most sense to me. And if you want to look at the other ones, you can look that up for yourself. When a person was designated as the high priest, they were high priest for life. But at this time in their history, there were people who became high priests through unlawful means, like paying the Roman government to put them in that position, for example. And so, in fact, the Romans would sometimes install and remove high priests on their own whim, based on what the Romans considered what was best for the Romans. So the person serving as the high priest at any one time would oftentimes not be the one who really was the high priest according to what the scriptures required. So I think when Paul, when Paul says he did not realize this man was the high priest, he was saying he's really not the true high priest at all. And, like, and you guys know that, right? Then he quotes Exodus twenty-two twenty-eight. You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So Paul acknowledged the truth of the word of God regarding speaking evil of a ruler. But he may also be saying, like I said, this man was not a legitimate ruler. Once again, Paul is basing both his beliefs and his actions on the word of God. And that's wisdom. You have to base your, 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 your beliefs, your actions on the word of God if you're going to be wise. One more thing to note about wisdom here. Godly wisdom is able to discern, able to discern what the fundamental issue is in a controversy. Paul displays this aspect of wisdom twice in this brief passage. You will notice that Paul only uttered one sentence, only one sentence before the Sanhedrin, before he was struck. He understood that this one sentence summed up the issue that he was being questioned about. He knew that he would not likely have an opportunity to speak in much detail with the Sanhedrin, so he made his first sentence count. Because it, so if Paul had truly lived with a perfectly good conscience before God up to that day, then he was right and the Sanhedrin were wrong. He was right that Jesus was the Messiah. He was right that the ceremonial laws had been fulfilled in Christ. He was right to serve Jesus Christ as his Lord and trust him as his Savior. And of course, if Paul was right, the Sanhedrin was completely wrong to deny the truth of who Jesus Christ was. Paul's one opening statement brought all of that to bear. And the high priest and everyone in the room knew it. So out of biblical wisdom, Paul was able to discern what the fundamental issue was in the controversy with the Sanhedrin. He does it again in verses 6 to 9. Let me read those verses for you again. But perceiving that one group were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, Paul began crying out in the council, Brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. As he said this, there occurred a dissension between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. 
And there occurred a great uproar, and some of the scribes of the Pharisaic party stood up and began to argue heatedly, saying, We find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. It's debated Paul's intention here. Was he bringing up this point about the resurrection as a legitimate part of his defense that he was going to include anyway? Or did he bring it up to divide the council because it was obvious he was not going to get a fair hearing anyway? Well, I think his first purpose was to present truth that was a legitimate part of his defense. The resurrection was and most definitely is a key truth of the Christian faith and the gospel message. Paul himself says in 1 Corinthians that if Christ was not raised from the dead, then we're all foolish to believe in him. We're foolish to act like, to be Christians. If the resurrection isn't true, it all falls apart. So, it's, I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a basic, a key aspect of the Christian message. If Jesus was truly raised from the dead, then he most certainly was the promised Messiah that he claimed to be. And because of his resurrection, everyone who believes in Christ has the hope of forgiveness and eternal life. Now, every Christian, whenever we're thinking about Christ coming again, the last day, judgment, that's also resurrection day. That's when everyone is resurrected from their graves and all stand before God. Those who are alive are alive, but those who are dead are all brought resurrected. Well, every Christian receives a wealth of benefits from Christ at that final resurrection. I'm going to read how the Baptist Catechism speaks of those benefits. Here's what it says. At the resurrection, believers being raised up in glory, raised from the dead, raised up in glory, shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted on the day of judgment. Openly acknowledged by, by God. You're one of my children. You're a one of my children. That's who you are. You're a believer. Openly acknowledged and acquitted. Every sin pronounced forgiven. It's all gone. That's, that's a benefit of the resurrection. So, at the resurrection, believers raised up in glory shall be openly acknowledged, acquitted in the day of, of judgment, and made perfectly blessed, both in soul and body, in the full enjoyment of God to all eternity. I mean, the resurrection speaks to us of just glorious blessings that continue throughout eternity. So this is just fundamental to the Christian faith, like we said. So Paul, and just throwing out something, let's see, let's see what they do with this. He's actually bringing out one of the most basic doctrines of the Christian faith, the fact that Christ was resurrected and the fact that believers are resurrected with him. So, Paul here, as he speaks this, describes himself as a Pharisee. He says, matter of fact, he gets more detail than that. He says, I was a, uh, I, I, I'm a, Where'd you say it? He says, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. So in other words, that's my history. That's my heritage. That's, that's who I come from. I'm a Pharisee. Well, there's what he's doing here. He's claiming things that the Pharisees believe that he agreed with, specifically the resurrection. Lots of things that, other things that Pharisees believed he didn't agree with. 
Because most of them denied that Jesus was the Christ. Obviously, he didn't agree with that. But as far as to the point that he still agreed with the Pharisees, then he's still a Pharisee. It's interesting how he does This is also wise. It's interesting how he does this. When he's speaking before Pharisees, he's a Pharisee of the Pharisees. And not just making it up, it's true. When he's about to get scourged, he's a Roman citizen. I mean, he, I mean, his understanding of how to apply these things in these really crucial times in his life, it just shows what clarity he had. He was a wise man. So, at the same time, I'm sure this came to his mind, and it says it did. Pharisees agree with me. The Sadducees completely disagree with this. So, in, so he knew at the same time, this is going to be an issue. But it is the issue anyway. So, of course, as they begin to argue back and forth, you know, and so forth, they kind of, there's such an uproar that Paul, once again, has to be rescued by the Roman commander because of what's taking place, has to be rescued for his own safety. So Paul brought out a key point of the gospel when he spoke of the resurrection. It wasn't just a ploy, but he also, again, had seen right away that he had no hope of a fair hearing with the Sanhedrin. And their response to his proclamation of the resurrection proved that. So wisdom enables us to see what the fundamental issues are in hard situations. What does it boil down to? Looking at all situations in life in the fear of the Lord and with dependence on the truth of the scriptures enables us to act wisely in difficult issues. So all in all, it's clear that Paul interacted with the Sanhedrin out of true godly wisdom. But closely connected with that is our second main point, which is Paul is an example to us of one who acted with godly courage. The very fact that Paul persisted in his journey to Jerusalem in spite, in spite of pleas from fellow believers shows he was a man of courage. He knew it was the right thing to do. And once Paul got to Jerusalem and was faced with great trials and threats to his life, he faced them courageously. William Gurnall was a uh, Puritan who wrote a remarkable commentary on Ephesians chapter 6, 10 through 20. Uh, Ten verses, this is in the early 1600s. The version I have is 1,200 pages long. It's called The Christian in Complete Armor. But let me read you the whole title. The whole title is always just so much fun for some of these old books. The Christian in Complete Armor, a treatise of the saints' war against the devil wherein a discovery is made of the grand enemy of God and his people in his policies, power, seat of his empire, wickedness, and chief design he has against the saints. A magazine is open, a magazine in the sense of a supply of weapons and ammunition. A magazine is opened from whence the Christian is furnished with spiritual arms for the battle, helped on with his armor, and taught the use of his weapon, together with the happy issue of the whole war. That's the title. <laughs> Makes you want to read the book, doesn't it? <laughs> Get started. It'll take you a while. 1,200 pages, small print. In the very beginning of his commentary, Gurnall talks about the need for courage in the Christian life. I love this quote. Here's what he said. He said, The Christian of all men needs courage and resolution. 
Indeed, there is nothing he does as a Christian or can do but is an act of valor. A cowardly spirit is beneath the lowest duty of a Christian. Paul clearly displayed displayed courage in going to Jerusalem when he knew he could be killed. He displayed courage in speaking to the mob that had just tried to kill him. He displays courage in speaking so confidently to the Sanhedrin and directly. My guess is probably none of us have been in situations, have found ourselves in situations like that. Maybe you have, but I'll be guess there's just very a handful, if there's any at all, who have had anything similar to those kind of experiences that Paul had. But we still need courage. Gurnall said, there is nothing, nothing a Christian does that, that, that cannot be described as an act of valor. Nothing. We need courage in dealing with temptations regarding fear, anxiety, lust, gluttony, bitterness. We need courage in any act of being obedient to God. It takes courage and resolution, for example, to keep the Sabbath day holy. It takes courage and resolution to pray, to read the scriptures, to meditate on biblical truth. That all takes courage. Those are acts of valor. That's because Satan is working hard to stop you from doing all of those things. It's not just Satan, it's the world around you and me that generally looks down on people who are committed Christians. They're not going to encourage you much in this stuff. And our own sinful flesh is constantly at war with us from within. That's why the Christian of all men, of all women, needs courage and resolution just to walk out the Christian life. Well, Lord Jesus Christ spoke directly to Paul about this in verse 11 here. He says, but on the night immediately following, this is after the, everything happened with the Sanhedrin, the Lord stood at his side and said, take courage, for you have solemnly t- witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. Apparently, none of Paul's friends or the elders of the Jerusalem church were able to visit with him. I mean, we have no record of anyone coming alongside Paul in any of these things. So Lord Jesus Christ personally stood by his side the night after the ordeal with the Sanhedrin. His words were, take courage. Well, the implication here is that Paul really had shown godly courage as he solemnly witnessed to Christ's cause in Jerusalem. And he must continue to show courage because the Lord promises he's going to be able to witness in Rome as well. He said, you have to be courageous, and you're going to need to continue to be courageous. Well, there's four things I think we can see about courage in these verses. The first one is this. Godly courage comes from remembering that in all things, in all things, believers are serving the Lord. Paul stood before the Sanhedrin as a servant of Jesus Christ. He had made it clear that he was fully willing to die for Lord Jesus if that was what was going to happen in Jerusalem. And that clear and conscious commitment to Christ gave him courage. 
That gives any that gives anybody courage when you boil it down to that. Because Paul was wise, he lived in the fear of the Lord. Therefore, he boldly and caringly spoke to the mob who was trying to kill him. He stood boldly before the Sanhedrin as well. I mean, this had to be a very intimidating experience. Sanhedrin is basically made up of 70 men that he had to stand before. The religious rulers of Jerusalem all focused on Paul as he stood there by himself. We're told in verse 1, he looked intently at the council as he spoke. You can almost just see him doing that, looking him in the eye as he looks at those 70 men. This guy was bold. He had courage. Just such a clear confidence in the Lord. And if you think about this, the last time that Paul had appeared before the Sanhedrin was when he had received letters to go to Damascus and arrest Christ's followers and bring them back to Jerusalem to be put on trial. That's the last time he stood before that body. A lot's happened since then. A whole lot. And Paul stands before them in the courage that the Lord Jesus Christ has given him. So because he was remembering in all things, he was serving his Lord. Second thing we see here. Godly courage is strengthened by a good conscience before God. Paul stood before the Sanhedrin knowing that he had lived his life in obedience to the Lord. Nothing to be ashamed of. This doesn't mean that he had never sinned. I mean, he's not saying he had never sinned. But he does say that he had faithfully done what the Lord had asked him to do. Getting things right when you need to get things right with the Lord, but continuing on that path of serving the Lord. So he had nothing to be ashamed of. He was a faithful servant of Jesus Christ. So he could boldly say, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. Having a clear conscience before God gives you courage before others. People can get mad at you because you're not willing to go along with what the culture says is right. Paul was living as a disciple of Jesus Christ in direct opposition to what the Jewish leaders before him believed. But he knew before God that he was doing the right thing, the God-honoring thing, and that gave him courage. So living in the fear of the Lord gives you both wisdom and courage. That's a great combination. Third, Godly courage is needed because believers know that speaking and living out the truth will be offensive, will be offensive to many people. It was clear that the Sanhedrin were hostile to Paul. He knew that going in. And it was apparently only a few minutes into the hearing that Paul was struck on the mouth because of what he had said. His response was to speak directly to the high priest who ordered him to be struck. Look again at what he said in verse 3. Paul said to him, God, <laughs> God, I mean, this kind of seems almost funny to me. I'm sure nobody was laughing. But uh, when Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Do you sit to try me according to the law and in violation of the law order me to be struck? There's some boldness there. (laughs) 
Some describe this as Paul making an imprecatory statement toward the high priest. In other words, uh, calling down a curse from God uh, on him based on his hypocritical behavior. That's possible, but I think it's more direct than that. I believe that God gave Paul a prophetic word against this particular man who was acting as high priest. This was a prophecy, I believe. He's telling Ananias that God is going to strike him for his sin. He describes him as a whitewashed wall. That's the idea. Of course, Jesus used the same image. But it's the whitewashed wall. It's the idea of everything looks clean and white on the outside. But you get behind the wall, and it's just filthy. It's nasty and filthy and immoral and whatever word you want to use. Well, the evidence of this is that Ananias is sitting in the seat of judging Paul according to the law of Moses. But in violation of the law of Moses, he he has a man who has not been declared guilty to be punished. That's not only unlawful, it's ungodly. That is a picture, an illustration, not only of this particular incident, but of Ananias' whole life. So God gave Paul a prophecy against Ananias that he courageously spoke to him. This, by the way, I think this is important to remember this. This is also an example of how the Lord kept his promise that he made to the apostles. Back in Luke 12, Luke 12, verses 11 and 12, Jesus said this, speaking to the the apostles, When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not worry about how or what you are to speak in your defense or what you are to say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. I think that's what happened here. The Lord promised that the Holy Spirit would give the apostles the words to say when they were called to account for their faith. And that's what happened with Paul. This man, Ananias, from what I've read, served as high priest from 47 to 59 A.D. Even after that, he continued to have uh, significant influence. He was actually murdered in 66 A.D. This is when hostilities between the Jews and the Romans were really greatly escalating. And Ananias was collaborating with the Romans. And so some Jewish revolutionaries assassinated him. So he was struck dead. Paul's bold prophecy was fulfilled. When you seek to live your life under the lordship of Jesus Christ, people are going to be offended. Now, we're not supposed to be purposely offensive. We're supposed to be gentle. I mean, speak graciously, those kind of things, kindly. But there is also a need to stand firm for what we know is right and true, to be committed to the honor of the Lord Jesus Christ, to live in the fear of the Lord. But some people are going to get offended by that. That's just reality. Finally, we see this. Godly courage is helped by taking note taking note of God's providential care for his children. So the Lord Jesus tells Paul, take courage. He has solemnly witnessed of Christ. Paul is being personally affirmed by the Lord for being faithful through lots of trials. And the Lord promises Paul that he will be able to testify in Rome as well. Now, one thing that is assumed in both the witness in Jerusalem that has already taken place 
And the witness and the promise witness in Rome is that Christ is with him to make sure those things were able to happen and will be able to happen. In Jerusalem, for example, the Lord used the Roman commander to save Paul from certain death at the hands of the mob. Here before the Sanhedrin, the commander steps in again when the meeting gets out of hand. Luke says that he was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by the members of the Sanhedrin. So again, pulls him out. These are clear examples of God's providential care. And he's going to see more of that. We'll see more of that in future verses as God's providential care to get Paul to Rome. I mean, instance, instance after instance after instance of God providentially watching over him. When you can call to mind all the ways that God has watched over you and provided for you and cared for you, it is easier to walk out your Christian life courageously. He's provided for you and I in so many physical, material, just tangible ways. All of us just have multiplied testimonies of that. He has blessed us with family. He has blessed us with good friends. He has blessed us with Christian examples. We've we've been blessed with so many opportunities to grow in our faith. Some of you even have stories, I'm sure, of how your life actually was spared because of a dangerous situation you were in. None of those things are accidental. None of them are. God is providentially watching over you and watching over me. That should give us courage. May we be people who live and grow in godly wisdom and courage, the courage we need to honor him. Lord, we do want to thank you for your word. We thank you for examples of men like Paul that you work through in just such dramatic ways. So thank you for that. Lord, the things that we see in Paul are things that we all know that we need. We all need wisdom. Like I said, we are constantly praying for wisdom because we know we need it. Lord, I ask that you would continue to help us grow in wisdom. Thank you for the wisdom you've already given us. The very fact that we are living in the fear of the Lord, that we have a confidence in your scriptures, in your word, I mean, that's the basis for wisdom. So thank you for the wisdom you've already given us. And Lord, every one of us know we need more. We continue to need wisdom. So I ask that you would grant us that wisdom as we walk in the fear of the Lord. Every one of us need courage. We've all got situations that are difficult. Oftentimes, we're kind of faced with something that we weren't even prepared for and caught by surprise. Sometimes it's something we're almost anxiously dreading. But, Lord, you are with us and ask that you would help us to be courageous. We need to be courageous on your behalf to stand before you and then before others as your witness, as your servant. If you're one who's never put your faith in Jesus Christ, Paul actually testified here about how the Lord saved him. He was deceived in his sin. If you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, I would call you to do that. A prayer like this would be a way to start. Lord, I realize that I am sinful. 
I realize that I have gone the wrong direction so many times in my life. But I thank you that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners like me. I thank you that he paid for my sin on the cross. And I want to receive him as my Savior. I commit my life to him as the Lord of my life. I want to walk in the fear of the Lord. If you want to talk in more detail about that commitment to Christ, you can make a note on the tear-off that you have in your bulletin, or uh, those who are watching online can reach out to us through the website.